Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. It is like a voyage of discovery into unknown lands. Seeking not for new territory, but for new knowledge. It should appeal to those with a good sense of adventure. Is a quote from Frederick Sanger the British biochemist who went on to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry, not once, but twice. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, a biochemist who has shown a good sense of adventure across the industries he has worked in and influenced, from pharmaceuticals to media and energy to technology. Our guest today is Ed McManus, Chief Executive Officer of Deliveroo Australia. With a network of over 8,000 riders and drivers that works with over 14,000 restaurants across the country. Prior to Deliveroo, Ed was Chief Executive Officer of Meridian Energy Australia, the owner-operator of the PowerShop retail electricity brand, and a number of electricity generation assets. Ed also held a variety of roles with REA Group and GlaxoSmithKline after beginning his career as a medical research scientist. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners and followers from all over the world, please don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform and for our listeners in Denmark, Afghanistan and Ireland, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson. Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Ed shares with us his fascinating story. Fueled by curiosity, a desire to always be learning, the tale of an Irish scientist at the helm of an organization halfway around the world, having experienced incredible growth at a time of grave uncertainty. In an open conversation... Ed does not hold back on his views on a variety of topics that affect not only the customer and end consumer, but also everyone on the way. Eager for challenges and comfortable in change, he brings to light the real reform required to inspire confidence amidst ambiguity from small businesses doing it tough to the world as a whole for the next generation. So sit back and enjoy comfort in change. Ed, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Greg. Why aren't you the world-leading biochemist? Great question. I wanted to be a scientist from a a very young age. I don't really remember. I was always a curious child. I um, I remember when I was seven or eight, I I, uh, took a pee on an electric fence 
at uh, my uncle's farm because I wanted to see what would happen. I've always wondered about that theory. Go yeah. on. Well, uh, don't try it. I can confirm <laughs> that uh, urine uh, conducts electricity very well. So um, I got a, a right old shock. But no, look, I was always interested in things like that and how things worked. And so from really young age, I, I decided I wanted to be a scientist. And I went on and I became a scientist and did that for a number of years. But when I was probably in my early to mid 20s, I decided this is not for me for the next 40 years. And uh, I wanted to try and do something different. And, and I guess looking back on it now with the benefit of hindsight, I have a broad range of interests. And look, science is a great career, but you've got to be very, very dedicated and focused to, to one or two things for, you know, really 40, 50 years. And that just wasn't for me. So that's why I changed and I've had, you know, the great fortune to do a number of different things in my career since then but uh, that's that's perhaps why the accent where's it from i'm irish i grew up in a small country town in, in rural ireland my dad was a gp okay and um, so he wasn't pissing on too many fences either no 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 he, he had he had more sense i think <laughs> but uh yeah so lived in australia for many years but but irish originally i've lived in a few places over the years and what brought you to the sunny shores of australia my uh, wife is Australian and we met uh, in the UK when we okay. were both living there and working. Yep. And one thing led to another, Greg, as, as you know how it works. And uh, I was naive and thought, oh, yeah, we'll just go back to Australia for a year or 18 months. But uh, 15 years later, here I am. So, look, obviously the, the discipline of science must have been very helpful. I guess it helps one think through in problem solving. But then I guess the next part I see you move into the other area about business, which is, is marketing somewhat is that you want to talk us through the stepping stones one i you start the career in the world of pharmaceutical but you mm -hmm. want to talk us through the evolution of the career i, I did a phd in, in uh, biochemistry and molecular biology and then and then worked for a couple of years as a as a scientist uh and that, that was the point that i decided this is not for me forever and and um I opened The Age one day, and this is back when more companies advertised in print than they do today for jobs. Yep. And, and there was a role at GlaxoSmithKline, which, as you know, is, is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. And, and I went for that role and, and was lucky enough to get the job. And then that was in a technical role, if you like. But I only spent about nine months doing that and pretty quickly moved into commercial marketing roles. So I have no formal marketing qualifications or degree or anything like that. But but um, Glaxo was a tremendous training ground, some very, very strong people there. I had some wonderful managers who really helped me and gave me opportunities. And, and I learned, I guess, you know, the broadly commercial disciplines and marketing disciplines while I was there. And I spent five wonderful years at that company, uh, learning many things and, and running, in the end, very large business units within Glaxo. Um, and, and so that's sort of how, how the move into, into commercial roles happened. And then from there, I went on to, to have other opportunities and move into different fields. Yeah, but very different, aren't they? You're, you're not one person who stays in that solitary sector. Yeah, and look, at, at one point, I thought Glaxo will be me forever. But, but okay. again, after about five years, I thought, you know, I've kind of maybe got itchy feet. And, um, you know, like, like a lot of things in business, as you know, relationships are important. And a mm -hmm. manager that I had had at Glaxo had moved you know, maybe a year before that, and he, he went to Aurier Group, which people will know, but for those who don't, it's the business that operates realestate.com.au. Yep. And um, my manager, uh, his name's Arthur Chalaftis, went and, and got a role at Aurier Group, and he contacted me and said, listen, are you interested in coming across? And we had a number of discussions, and, and I thought, you know, why not? This sounds good. It's a digital business. It's It's growing. 
very rapidly. Um, it has huge potential because at that time, talking about jobs in the paper for, for um, sorry, pardon me, ads in the paper for jobs at that time, you know, the bulk of advertising spent for real estate was also in print. Yes. It's a huge opportunity to drive that towards online. And so I decided that was a good opportunity. But, you know, it was relationships that got me there. And then once I got there, it was it was hard work and a bunch of other things that led to some success in that company. But again, it was wonderful in hindsight, a really wonderful move because I learned a huge amount um, about how digital works. I mean, I mean, I really knew nothing arriving there, really nothing. But what about the shift, Ed? You're going from the giant of you know, the global organization of Glaxo mm-hmm. to REA, cutting edge in Australia. Yep. What excited you? A change for one. Um, you know, again, I didn't know this at the time, Greg, but looking back now many years later, I'm very comfortable with change. I like being kind of out of my depth. Okay. I think that's the best place to learn. You know, if it sounds um, planned, it wasn't planned. I mean, I didn't sit there going, hey, I like change and, hey, you know what, real estate advertising is the sector for me, so therefore <laughs> I target this business. Not at all. It was an opportunity that came up and it just – it was a very, very tough decision to, to leave GlaxoSmithKline and all the great mentors and managers I had there, but but it was the right move for me, and, and I just felt it was going to be something where I would learn. And I think that's something that's been important to me over my career, and and you know I encourage everyone who works for, for me or people I, I come across to always think about what they're learning. If you are, I don't mean learning in the formal sense uh, in terms of uh, courses or anything like that. I mean, just the, the exposure that you get in companies, if you're learning a lot through experiences, through great people, and you're contributing a lot to that business, then that's win-win for you and the business. And, and when that changes and perhaps you're not learning as much, then, you know, for me at least, then probably the company's not getting as much out of me, particularly in the early days, and it was time to move on. So so that's, I guess, why it happened and, and why I felt it was good opportunity. And look, at that time, people were starting to realize that gaining digital skills was not a nice to have in a career. It was a must have. And so I was lucky to do that reasonably early in a business that I think at the time, Greg, from memory, the market capitalization might have been 1.52 billion. Mm-hmm. And by the time I left, it was you know 8, 9 billion. So Aurier Group went through enormous growth. Um, and, and it was a great time to be there. Next step up, again, new industry, but a new level. So you want to talk us through that? And I haven't come across PowerShop before. So can you talk us maybe a bit about what the culture was like and what the agenda was and, mm-hmm. and why given this big role? Yeah, so PowerShop, for those who, who don't know, is an electricity retailer. It, it's a, a medium-sized tier two retailer, if you like, is the industry term in energy. Um, but at the time it had, when I joined, maybe five, ten thousand 10,000 customers, it was very small. Um, it was part of Meridian Energy Australia, which is an energy generator, which itself is this, is the Aussie subsidiary of Meridian Energy, which is a very, very large uh, New Zealand generator and retailer of electricity. And uh, PowerShop was you know, very innovative at, at the time. The typical electricity experience was you would use electricity and then get a bill three months afterwards and be asked to pay. In contrast, PowerShop had an app. Uh, that showed you your electricity usage almost in real time, and you could you could purchase on the go and engage in electricity a bit more. And, and honestly, Greg, having come out of um, Aurier Group, I mm. looked at PowerShop, the brand, and I looked at the app, and I thought to myself, even if I do a terrible job, this thing is going to do well. Yeah, right. Because it was so differentiated from what AGL and Origin had. I thought this is a no-brainer. I've I've got to do this role. And so I joined when, as I said before, maybe the business had five, ten thousand customers. 
and a small team. And, and when I left, we had, I think, about 160,000 customers and had grown into other states and we'd added gas. So I joined to run the retail part, but I wound up running Meridian Energy Australia as a whole. And, and we did a whole bunch of things in electricity generation. So we bought some hydropower stations. We wrote some long-term contracts to get new wind farms built and, and all sorts of things. So I mean, it was one of the, clearly one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, but Ed, I was going to ask you something just when you're in the full throes here. I'm, I'm reading about your, your biography mm-hmm. and I come across this, this uh, summary. Designed and built by engineers, bastardized by economists, and muddled by marketers. The power industry continues to deliver one of the most successful consumer confusion programs of all time. With the help of our customers, we are trying to combat the confusion. What was going on? Well, that was the description. And look, it largely has changed, to be fair, but that was the description of the electricity industry, Greg. You've got to build. As I say, three months after the fact, there was, you know, a cents per kilowatt hour and a cents per day. No one understands what a kilowatt hour is. No. The bill was $4,000 or it was $2,000. You really had no sense as to why that was. If you tried to ring up, what are the answers? You can't really get any answers. Yep. So it's really just a a complete nightmare. And, And of course, you're captured because you have to have electricity and gas. It's not like you can really realistically choose to go without it. Yeah. So what we tried to do at PowerShop was was to simplify all that. You open the app, you can see how much you used yesterday in terms of usage and what that's cost. And there were all sorts of great examples. So one of my colleagues figured out that his kids were skipping school because he looked at the PowerShop app and, and there was all this usage in the middle of the day when no one was supposed to be home. Lo and behold, these two boys who were teenagers at the time, they're a bit older now, were skipping school or at home with the plasma TV on. So... Look, it's just basics. If you think about the world today, it doesn't sound that advanced, but tell people about the, the product they're consuming, how much is it costing, give them the option to use less if, if they want to save money or how to, to rationalize and, and use more in certain things and less in other things. Because, for, of course, as you know, for many Australians, um, power bills are a major issue. Yep. We're luckily power prices are coming down now yep. for a bunch of reasons. Um, but but still, for many people, it's it's a real struggle on the family budget and showing people uh, a way to use less power and figure out that they've left the heater on in the granny flat. You could see that through the PowerShop app. You know, if that was a traditional company, the thing could be on for three months before you'd realize. So, you know, it, honestly, it was revolutionary at the time, but, you know, that's five, six years ago. And is, today's it, but is, world, it re- is it revolutionary or is it just giving me customer service? Because, you know, there's uh, the same old, no. same old. I, the only time I ever get a, a drop in my bill from the power companies is when I ring yeah. up to complain that I'm well, going to you move. Should, you, should, you should ring PowerShop and my old colleagues and sign up with them. <laughs> they'd be delighted to have your business and I'm sure they treat you very well. But um, I think you make a great point. It's not revolutionary. It, it's just, it's the basics in terms of, you know, think about retail. If I walk into a shop, to buy groceries, I know I'm going to buy apples, carrots, and, and you know whatever else. And this is the price per kilo, or this is the price per per item. And, and I can budget on the fly and mentally say, well, this is you know what I can afford, or this is what I want to buy. And that's how consumers operate. But electricity and gas were completely different. And so all we really did was was bring that up to date. It's a fair point. And and, and others have have done that. Uh, and now with most retailers, of course, you can you can uh, download an app and see what you're doing. And, and of course, that's what happens in innovation. In many industries, Greg, it's the small player that drives the change. Yep. It's the bigger players that come and, and adopt that change and, and push it through the whole industry. So there's, there's a freedom? Is that what it's about? You know, you yeah, said absolutely. You, absolutely. Yeah. We used to call it control. 
get control over your power bills because you, you'll be able to see, as I said before, what's really going on. Am I using too much more than I want to use? What is it costing? Um, and the other factor that that we spoke about a lot was Meridian is a renewable power business and, uh, you know, hydro, wind, et cetera. And for many people from a, a values perspective, given the challenge we have around climate change and things, um, they wanted to spend their money with a company that was investing in renewable energy. Um, and so that was another big part of our message to consumers and proved to be very successful for us. So what's your takeaway, Ed, from your exposure and experience in the whole energy sector? Where are we going as a nation? A bit more serious, but I'm interested in your views. Yeah, it's a real mess. I think what happened, Greg, is that the market worked exactly as it was designed to do, but the political appetite was not there to allow the market to work, by which I mean the market, you know, the, the national electricity market was designed by some very, very clever people way before my time in the industry. And like many markets, pretty basic supply and demand. If you take supply out and demand stays the same, price goes up. Yep. As price goes up, that's a signal for more people to come in and invest in plant, uh, electricity generation plant. And yep. as you get more supply, demand stays static, price comes back down. What, what happened in Australia, there are a number of things looking back. Hindsight's easy. We had saw the closure of a major coal plant here in Victoria, which was at the end of its natural life. And around the same time, this 12 months gap, we um, opened up gas export out of Queensland. Yes. The closure of coal meant that gas was the price setter in the wholesale market more often. Opening up of gas export meant that the uh, wholesale gas price increased. And the combination of those two things, along with lots of other stuff too, meant that the wholesale price of electricity and gas went up and that flowed through to consumers. What should have happened is that governments should have stayed out of the way and you know the major investors international and local like meridian like agl like origin would have come in and invested instead what's happened to some extent it's not black and white is that governments just didn't have the appetite to see high power prices and so have have started and have continued to and i'm talking all shades of government and state and federal have interfered with the market and continue to interfere and and that just spells trouble. Um, now, wholesale power prices have come down and gas prices have come down. That's partly, to be fair, due to positive things governments have done. It's partly luck. There's a combination of factors in there. But I worry that, um, you know, governments, I'm not a central planner. I don't believe in that mode. Okay. And, and what we're seeing now is central planning. Yep. Some of that is for, for I guess, political and ideological reasons on both sides. Some yes. governments want to see more renewables. Some governments want to see more forms of traditional fossil fuel fueled dispatchable power. And we're seeing government intervention on both sides. We saw probably the biggest intervention with uh, Snowy 2.0. Yep. Um, and so, you know, the, the truth is difficult to disentangle, but that's what I would put it down to is just lack of appetite for um, high power prices, not letting the market get on with it. And if they had done that and, and let the market play out, we would have seen uh, more investment and, and mostly more investment in renewable power because renewables plus dispatchables, whether that's battery or hydro, are simply the cheapest form of new power, not new coal-fired power stations. But are we exposing ourselves to new renewables too early? No, I don't think so. I you think, don't think so? Um, no, I don't think so. I think um, anyone who tells you the problem is solved I would say maybe needs to educate themselves a bit more. It's incredibly complex. We don't have all the answers in terms of how to plan the system transition 
from one mainly coal based to one mainly renewables based. But it is doable, and there are some, I mean, really, really tremendously clever people within industry and the market operators and regulators in energy, and I'm pretty confident it, it, it will happen and uh, it would have happened. Um, so, no, I, I wouldn't say so, Greg. It's just, look, it's, it's economics in the end. If you can build renewables backed up with hydro, maybe some gas, increasingly batteries, um, cheaper than you can new coal, well, then you get winners, and ultimately, uh, consumers benefit. Why did you depart the industry, Ed? Well, you, I think, Greg, you can see a bit of a pattern here. It was five years in, in energy, and uh, okay. I was very happy there. Some, you know, Meridian was a, a tremendous business, very talented people. I was very lucky. Some really great colleagues and, and people working for me. Uh, but I was sort of thinking, you know, what do I do here? At, at that point, I'd been CEO for a few years, and, uh, and I was approached uh, about Deliveroo. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting. Did you know much about them? No, no, I knew them. I knew them. Okay. Uh, the brand is pretty well known. Yeah. Um, what I liked about the business is, in some ways, if you think about energy, although they seem very different, it's not really that different. Meridian had a good combination of technology and consumer interface through yes. PowerShop and the app and everything we've discussed, you know, and pricing and, and marketing and consumer behavior and, and all of that. But also a a very large, it's really a very large infrastructure business with uh, the power generation assets. In some ways, what I liked about Deliveroo, you know, we are a tech business uh, that that allows people to order food on an app and have that delivered to them very quickly. But we're also a logistics business in terms of how those items get delivered quickly, um, and so that that combination of of digital. Um, offline, online, if you like, was attractive to me. So, so hence, you know, I was willing to have some conversations and, and things moved very quickly and, and I accepted the role. Ed, can you share a little bit to us who actually owns the organization? Who yep. founded it? What was the pace that they brought upon and the expansion overseas? Can you maybe just give us a bit of history of the organization? Yeah, so I run the Australian business. We're headquartered in London operate in 12 countries across Europe, Middle East, and APAC. The global headquarters is in London. We were founded by Will Shu, a former Morgan Stanley, I think it's Morgan Stanley analyst. And, uh, you know, they say the best founders are people who have felt the problem rather than think about the problem. And and Will was an analyst working long hours, as you'd expect. And and, um, he said, well, how do we get food? And and someone pulled out all the the restaurant menus and they said, well, you got to ring the restaurant and then order and then go down from floor 50 to floor zero and walk down the road and pick it up. And he thought, well, that's not necessarily the most efficient so way. So he founded the business a number of years ago, starting in, in London and, and expanding pretty quickly. I think, look, we're a very exciting uh, sector, I think. And that was part of the reason I joined. Um, really cutting edge in terms of, of pace, um, how we make decisions, very interesting in terms of how technology changes people's lives. And, and I guess maybe that was what interested them, if you think about natural synergies w- with their business. But, you know, the business has has grown enormously. Our, our investors have a very large appetite for growth. COVID has been interesting for us because, of course, uh, as you know, many restaurants, unfortunately, had to close their doors to dine in customers through COVID, you know, different in different states, but most acutely where we are here in Victoria, our head office is in Melbourne. Uh, but that has driven across many sectors, 
more penetration of online and in food delivery, of course, for, for a period, uh, we were the only way that people could get food from restaurants. And in some cases, remember early in COVID, going back to March, there were problems of supply of certain items in supermarkets. There were queues outside supermarkets, security guards in some cases. So, you know, as you can imagine, for us and other companies in our sector, we've seen enormous expansion of the market in the last 12 months. How do you differentiate yourself in your sector? I think it's difficult. I'm not sure if it's any more or less difficult than energy. How does PowerShop differentiate itself versus AGL? How does ANZ differentiate versus Westpac, et cetera? You're, you're always trying to think with the, the consumer first. Um, you know, I said before, trying to really feel the problem. Yep. So I order a lot of Deliveroo personally. Yep. Not so good for my waistline, I would say, but my <laughs> kids enjoy it. But, um, you know, and, and you get to feel what it's really like. And, and Greg, when there are multiple people involved in the value chain, by which I mean we have the, the consumer, the restaurant, and the rider delivering the food, yep. as well as us coordinating. If you think it's a three-sided marketplace, that, that's quite unusual. Uh, and that presents a number of challenges you know, and, and ways for things to go wrong. And then fundamentally, you're delivering a product that needs to be consumed. I mean, we, we don't just deliver hot food, by the way. There's mm-hmm. cold food and groceries and other products. But, but at the moment, the majority of our business is, is hot food. That means that's got to be delivered very quickly. Otherwise, it's a poor consumer experience. And so we are continuously trying to understand um, you know, the DNA of the company, really, and the way it was founded was trying to understand what consumers want, deliver to that better and better, solve problems. And you know, that is one way of differentiating. But of course, our competitors are doing the same. And so um, like many industries that the listeners will be in, I don't think we're that different and we're just continuously trying to focus on our own business and trying to do what we do better, trying to improve consumer outcomes, as well as, of course, help restaurants become more successful and provide an important form of work to the people who work as contractors for us to deliver the food. You mentioned the model a few minutes ago, Ed. Can you talk us through, okay, this is the initial part, I guess, of the, the bigger plan. What are the ambitions for Deliveroo? Well, as I, said, I think I said before, our, our, our investors are, are very focused on growth and yeah. perhaps traditionally have been less focused on the bottom line. That, that has changed somewhat. Um, I know that sounds, uh, sounds silly, but, but as you know, for many tech companies, it is a, a growth-focused yeah. uh, market, if you like. Yep. Um, and so, but but oh, I think over time, we, we've, we we're now paying more attention to the bottom line of the business and growing uh, the business in a, in a more sustainable way. And, and, and that's certainly the case today. We need to make decisions at a global level about where we invest, and that includes capital allocation decisions across countries. Uh, as I said before, we are in 12 countries, and our competitors here in Australia are global businesses also. Australia, food delivery is relatively well penetrated, so okay. if I give you a sense, you know, we're in France, we're also in Hong Kong, so to use the example, uh, food delivery is is more highly penetrated in Australia than it is in France. So the Australia food delivery market is bigger than the French food delivery market, despite uh, French population being significantly higher. Wow. But but on a population basis, food delivery is more penetrated in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, but in all of those countries, food delivery is, is penetration is relatively low. So there's still huge growth opportunities. If you look at the total size of the food industry, whether it's globally or in Australia, we are still a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So there's enormous, enormous opportunity. 
So I guess, so what, what sort of patterns have you picked up about the Australian customer? Compared to some countries that we're in, Australians, uh, we're, we're, we are relatively wealthy, Greg, um, as you know. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that everyone shares that wealth, of course not, but compared to other countries, people in Australia, are, you know, on average have disposable income more so than some countries, of course. Yep. Uh, and then combined with the fact that the, because I've guessed that the makeup of Australia and, and uh, you know, the number of people who have emigrated to Australia over the years from all sorts of different countries means that we have a very diverse thriving food culture and okay. the combination of those things means that i guess people are willing to spend money on food and spend money on different types of food and that means that uh, australia is an attractive market for the restaurant sector and the food delivery sector but uh you know also we have we have that comes with meaning that uh, consumers have high standards around their food. Yeah, right. And, and that means, as we talked about before, we need yep. to work very hard to meet consumer expectations on standards. What about we're also an ageing population compared to other countries. Adaptability to technology, was there any insights there compared to others? Uh, not, not really, um, other than what I would say that I've seen throughout my career. Um, so certainly if I go back to PowerShop, we had probably better data on this compared to what we have at Deliveroo for various different regulatory reasons. You, you learn a little bit more about your customer in, in electricity than you do in food delivery. And so that meant we were allowed to look at demographic data and you might assume given what I told you about the nature of PowerShop and the app and things like that, that we would skew towards a younger population. That was not correct, actually. Our, our basically, PowerShop customers mirror the Australian population. Okay, right. And so we were not overrepresented in the 25-year-old versus the 85-year-old. It was a, a pretty uh, even mix. So I think um, the days, if I go back further uh, to the days of realestate.com, we certainly yes. talked about the fact that there was a skew and maybe older parts of the population yep. would uh, prefer ads to be in print and younger would prefer ads to be online. And, you know, that's going back 10, 12, 15 years. That's not the case anymore. I think digital has been, is penetrated everywhere. Okay. Ed, look, what's the other, I guess, on-demand options the company's looking forward to tap into? Sure. Well, really, it's anything. In theory, if I talk about the sector and what we see globally, if you think about any product, any consumable that you have a need for quickly. Um, and consumer expectations are changing. And so the obvious ones are on-demand grocery. So what we see in other countries, this is more penetrated today than in Australia. People will still go to their supermarket for a weekly shop. And, and you know, in Australia, you can do your weekly shop online, typically yes. that, that arrives a few hours later or tomorrow within a window of a couple of hours. What we see in other countries is people will do their weekly shop, be that physically or digitally, but then they'll do their top-up shop uh, on demand. And so if you've run out of milk, nappies, wipes, I'm giving you examples that are live ones from my family, um, <laughs> or Panadol or whatever else, then then rather than racing out at 8.30 at night to pick up those items, you you would order those from, a, from a, an on-demand player. That specific example mm-hmm. is... We see that more of a feature in other countries than we do in Australia today, but it's inevitable. I think that it will come here. Okay. And then you think about other products, everything from pet food to pharmacy products to anything. I mean, we, we, we uh, consumer expectations are changing. And I think if, if you get used to getting things on demand in, in one part of the economy, 
uh, that's uh, I think starts to shift in people's brains to expect that sort of service in in other parts of the economy. And I think whether that's Deliveroo or our you know direct competitors, or we'll see other technology companies fill that space um, remains to be seen. But uh, someone will, and I think more and more people want consumer items quickly and there will be someone there to deliver them for them quickly so if i set up a business and i've got yes. a couple of backers and i've got a new product and i want to get it out quick and i know i've got a market out there how do i get onto your platform well i thought you were going to ask how do you establish a platform no relatively straightforward you come and talk to me greg and i'll always uh, entertain we can talk commercials that that uh, work for both of us but uh now look we're in a number of, of discussions with some of the sorts of companies I just mentioned. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, there are everyday new tech startups in this area. We see them all the time. In other countries, we're seeing dark stores for groceries. So we're seeing people raise money based on the fact that they have a warehouse, some shelving, and maybe 1,000 grocery SKUs. Right. That's, you know, enough. We're, we don't see that as, again, not saying that in Australia, we, we're seeing kitchens and, and we have a large number of these kitchens all over the world, including some in Australia. We call them additions kitchens that are set up for delivery only. Deliveroo pioneered that concept a number of years ago. We have, I think, 350 or so of these kitchens all over the world. But we're starting to see that for grocery because, you know, one, it's filling a need. Two, as you know, there's a lot of empty space or retail and former industrial space around our suburbs. So something will go in there eventually and people will take advantage of opportunities and, and consumer demand. Safety is going to be very important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How do you ensure that is maintained for these young young guys and young ladies on, on their bikes? There's a huge amount we are doing and I think there's a huge amount more the industry could do um, because, as you know, unfortunately, relatively recently, we've seen a number of tragic deaths as a result of accidents. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot, Greg, about safety when I was at Meridian because uh, electricity generation, and in our case, that was wind farms and hydropower stations. You're, you're working at height, working around deep water, you know, working uh, in electricity. There are hazards everywhere. And, and a safety culture is something that is easy to say and it's a little bit more difficult to establish, but mm. it really has to be core to the organization. And that Meridian, it really was core. I mean, we, we said there is no megawatt hour extra of generation that is worth an accident. But, you know, that that's quite easy to say when it, you have to really follow through on that. And, you know, I'm making this example up, but there might be something where a piece of maintenance needs to be done on some plant it's really critical maintenance from a i don't mean from a plant point of view but from a safety point of view maybe there's a guardrail missing or something you know you're thinking we really need to shut down that turbine of the wind farm let's say mm -hmm. using this example but we know that uh, this afternoon there's a hype there's going to be a price spike in the wholesale market now it would be very easy for the manager in the electricity industry to say you know what just don't worry about that for this afternoon let's capture the high price we'll make more money you can fix that safety issue in the morning. If that's your culture, accidents are inevitable. Um, and you just you just have to put people's safety before financial outcomes. And and so that's you know a more extreme example, but but that permeated through the culture at Meridian and I and I learned an enormous amount uh, in that business. 
when it comes to Deliveroo, we're working with uh, regulatory bodies. We're working with state and federal governments on this issue. There's a certain amount of risk when when any of us go on the road, whether that's to just ourselves get from A to B or for people who work on the road, as is the case for people who do deliveries for Deliveroo or, or other companies in the sector. There's more we could be doing from an education perspective. We provide insurance uh, to riders um, already. Um, we can work with state governments on road infrastructure. And, and I think what, what I guess I've learned over the years is that job is never done. You can always work harder to try and reduce risk. And risk, you know, will well, I mean, I don't want to say never because it's possible that one day we will not have deaths on, on roads in, in Australia. I'm not talking about food delivery here. I mean, just generally yeah. uh, on roads for all of us. But I guess that that success is some years away, just based on where we are today. But I guess it, it's uh, for those of us who work in sectors where, where transport is involved, it's very important that we continue to strive to try and ensure uh, injuries, et cetera, uh, are brought down to the lowest level possible. But where are we on that um, debate and discussion, Ed, regarding contractor versus employee in this in this industry? It's 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 topical, so we've got to we've got to cover it off. No, of course, of course. I think it's probably a, it's it's more of a debate. I would say externally um, in the media and you know etc. Than it is necessarily internally between Deliveroo and our riders, and the reason for that is. And people, Greg, will say, listen to that. Well, of course, Ed, you would say this. But, you know, the facts are when we speak to riders about why they ride for Deliveroo, deliver for Deliveroo, I should say we say riders generically internally. It's about evenly split between cars and motorcycles. But okay. uh, Yeah. So um, when we speak to riders about why they work with us, it, it is flexibility is the number one thing because many are studying, many yeah. are working other forms of traditional jobs, and they do some deliveries to, to save money for holidays or pay off credit card bills. Many are, are caring for other people in their lives and the ability to decide, hey, it's Friday afternoon, I've got a few hours spare, I'll log on to Deliveroo and, and see if there are jobs there to be done and by the way at the same time i'll log on to uber or some of the other companies uh, i can pick and choose between those companies as to which jobs and deliveries i will do uh, that is enormously attractive to them and when you say well okay what about if we changed our model to something more akin to more traditional forms of work what they say is well, we could no longer work with you because it just doesn't work in with their schedules so really that's where the debate lies. People will talk about earnings. You know, Victorian government report recently, uh, you know, I guess it was a survey. The Victorian government have done a, a large um, independent inquiry into the gig mm. economy. This is broader than food delivery. And yeah, when they surveyed people in the gig economy. Yep. They report what their earnings are uh, and their earnings are higher than the minimum wage. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, Victorian government independent report would be, I guess, seen as as you know independent and not grinding an axe one way or another so you know i think greg people can earn some money uh, and earn good money in a manner that suits them in terms of how they want to fit this form of work around what they're doing the rest of their lives now we would like to do more in terms of things like sick leave things like uh, other forms of benefits but the labor laws today don't allow us to do that because the contractor model is central to how our business 
operates. Yep. If you start to provide other benefits, then you're into because you know contractor employee. It's not a black and white yep. uh, delineation. Yep. If you start to provide other benefits, you're into employee land, and, and for reasons I've described, employee status doesn't work for the people who do the deliveries for us today. So actually, they don't want that, uh, despite what you might hear about. But really, what we are asking the government to do is to really think about reform here and almost create a a third class of employment status that sort of sits between the casual and the contractor. And and that actually would be the best of both worlds. But that requires uh, reform and requires thinking. So I'm a sole trader and I've got my my insurances and everything else. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if I've worked all night and I click onto you you guys say, look, I'll deliver and I have an accident on the way to I know, a customer, yep. what happens there? You're covered by Deliveroo Insurance. Okay. That, yep. That's the case, is it? And that's that that, known? that is it, 100% the case. Yeah. yeah okay. That so, has always been the case. Yeah. Um, so, so absolutely. I mean, of course. But if you were ill the next day, yep. you would not get sick leave. No, because you're running your own Correct. business. Well, we would like to pay you sick leave. How's this going to work out? Well, it's, I hope it's going to work out through through proper discussion and real reform that to create a class of employee that's different to a contractor, but yep. it's different to an employee, sits in the middle, suits the gig economy, okay. allows a food delivery person to say, hey, use the same example. I'm, I'm at uni. I'm, I'm doing some study. You know what? I feel like a break from study. I want to earn some money. Um, I'm going to go outside, turn on the, the app for Deliveroo turn on the app for two or three other food delivery companies yep. and I'll see jobs come up and pick and choose. Um, but, and if that person, you know, again, to be clear, has an accident, they're covered by insurance for Deliveroo. But if that person has worked, for, you know, with Deliveroo all week and then the next week uh, is ill, then of course, you know, it's, it's, this, is the, this is not about um, legalities. This is about what's the right thing to do. The right thing to do would be that person should be entitled to some sick leave today, but that requires reform. The only way we can do that today is to make that person an employee. Then we would say, hey, you've got to do a shift on Monday afternoon. And the person says, well, I'm I'm using the same example. I've got uni on Monday afternoon, so I can't do it. It just doesn't work. So, you know, like many things, we talked about energy, Greg, like many things, real reform is required. And, and, And I worry in Australia, that with three layers of government, this is a real issue in electricity. No, agreed, agreed. We got, you know, so uh, you know the way your electricity rules um, operate is different if you live in Albury versus Wodonga. Mm. And um, you know, so for example, let me give you a real example. If you are entitled to an energy concession, yeah, it's slightly different. Not just slightly different; it's actually very different for the pensioner who lives in Albury versus the pensioner who lives in Wodonga. What that practically happens is the next time that person calls the call center of the electricity company, they're put through to somebody and the person, you know, we're all human, right? They just happen to have top of mind. Because, I mean, you think about it, honestly, the, the people who work in electricity call centers, the amount of things they have to remember about how the system works, how it works from a regulatory perspective, and what that person is entitled to in terms of concessions is, is enormous. I mean, it, they, listen, they do a tremendous job in those call centers. So the person rings up from Wodonga and they go, you know what, actually, you're entitled to this energy concession. I'm going to apply that to your account. That's fantastic. The person's happy. They get a call then from the person in Albury. Yep. They just might not remember that actually in Victoria, it's slightly different to New South Wales. 
Who loses out? It's the pensioner. Yeah, right. And and so listen, I'm giving you one example. Multiply that by a thousand in electricity, and yeah. that's what you're dealing with. And so, you know, sometimes I worry that um, we have got multiple layers of government, and, and reform is difficult, and and you know that electricity and food delivery are, are similar for all the right reasons. State governments are very interested in these areas. Federal governments are very interested in these areas. That's not a bad thing, but that just means reform is is complex. But we would like that to change. But but what we see in this sector, Greg, is that um, there's an attempt to sort of shoehorn what is a you know part of, if you like, inverted commas, the new economy yeah. into regulation of the old economy, and it just doesn't work. Now people will say, yeah, well that's just Ed, and he's saying that, um, but it's not the case. I mean, if 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 uh, hopefully you understand why I'm saying mm, yeah, what I yeah. am, and, and uh, you can see that it's not it's not simple. This is not us trying to dodge our responsibilities. This is about us saying there's a form of work here that yep. does not suit people yep. who want to be rostered onto shifts, basically, in, in simple language. Yep. So hence why we do it the way we do it today. However, we would like to provide those people with numerous other benefits. One example is sick leave. We can't do that today. Now, it gets very complex because what happens if um, the person works for two hours Let's put it this way. They do three jobs for Deliveroo, and then they do four jobs for Uber on the Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. On a Monday morning, they're ill. Who pays the sick leave? Now, that's solvable. That is solvable. But it's not solvable using regulation of the old economy. We've got to come up with a new way to think about that. And if we, if we do that, then it can be solved. So the process of coming up with that, who do you got to have your conversations with? To get this changed. Well, well, you look, um, in the main, workplace legislation is the realm of the federal government, not yeah. entirely. Okay. So we, we are mostly talking to the federal government about this, but also state government. But it's it's complex. And that, Greg, like it's not, I'm not criticizing anyone in state governments, anyone in federal governments. No, it's, they're, government, they're all it's there. government catching up to new economies, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And look, in any sector, and, and I've seen this in three sectors I've been in, Innovation always goes out ahead of regulation. Always happens. So you're feeling confident that regulation is going to catch up, Ed? I think so. Look, we're having productive conversations, as are others in the sector. And, and this is not an, a problem limited to Australia. We're having these discussions in every country we operate in. And, uh, you know, I'm confident that over time we can reform in a sensible way that suits consumer demand the way people want to work in this industry, in this sector, which which has gig economy goes far beyond food delivery. It's just yes. one example. Yep. And uh, works for everyone. Ed, can you talk us through the philosophy around your carbon offsetting scheme? Well, that was something, again, if you go back to the, the PowerShop and Rudian experience, we, we had some success with customers joining PowerShop because philosophically they wanted to reduce their impact on the environment and, and electricity generation at the time and still is a carbon intensive industry. If you think about food delivery, yep. you are putting a vehicle onto the road in the vast majority of cases that vehicle emits carbon. We have to, we do have some people who are on push bikes, um, but in the main, there will be carbon you know, emitted as a result of the physical delivery of the food and us buying carbon offsets, and we buy carbon offsets from a, a range of projects in Australia as well as overseas, uh, is a way to, you know, in, in some small way, reduce, for the want of a better description, the guilt associated with having food delivered. 
you know, this this is not groundbreaking stuff, Greg. Many companies carbon offset today because everybody wants to, you know, increasingly people yeah. want to do more to preserve the environment we have. And I think if anyone had any doubt, well, the events of 12, 14 months ago, I think we'll put that to bed because the world, I believe, is changing. And I think we need to sensibly reform to, you know, that's not about turning the lights out, but yeah. we need to sensibly reform towards the future so that, uh, you know, the world we give to our grandkids is similar to the world we inherited. You've been focused to, I guess, towards the customer majority of your career. So real simple question to you, what is actually customer service? For me, mostly, if I think about my personal desires and experience, it's I want something that's seamless. I don't necessarily want to be talked to. I just, I want it to be easy. And, um, and I think um, we... I remember at REA Group used to, you know, often measure things like NPS, et cetera, as, as many companies uh, do yeah. and did. We started to measure customer effort score, which was a, a measure of how hard it was for a business to deal with you. So if a customer wanted to, you know, if a customer wants to contact Deliveroo or a customer wants to contact PowerShop or whatever, how hard is it to deal can, can you get first call resolution, all those sorts of things? And that's customer effort score. And I think for me, getting customer effort score down is probably a better measure than net promoter score. Because, I mean, let's face it, not many of us go out and promote the vast majority of businesses we interact with. There are very few businesses you'd really stand around at the barbecue and actually promote to your friends. It's just certain categories we don't promote. Um, so I think customer effort score is, is important. And I just, for me anyway, personally, it's about ease. Um, sometimes in some sectors, we talk too much about delighting the customer and all sorts of things. I think most sectors, you just want it to be simple, easy, get the outcome you want. I'm not sure this is true, Ed, but is it um, in the past you worked many weekends and would personally get engaged with the customer? I did. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in electricity. Often imagine, Greg, someone's moving house. Um, um, they have power turned off at the old property. They want the power turned on at the new property. They turn up on the Saturday morning and the power is not on. And again, like food delivery, electricity is complex. There are a number of players involved, the lines, companies, the retailers, et cetera. And, and unfortunately, things can go wrong. And very regularly, I would deal with the people on a Saturday morning who, I mean, look, it happened in a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of cases, but you know, you get some where they turn up at the new property on a Saturday morning all excited, all happy, turn on the light switch, the lights aren't on. Total disaster. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd take those calls. And, you know, it just, I mean, it used to just kill me. I mean, just the idea of people arriving, they're, you know, that maybe they're, you know, maybe imagine it's a young couple, it's their dream, it's their first home. Here we, we're so excited, turn up, lights not on. I mean, what a, what a downer. And um, anyway, so I just felt it was very important to, to one, to just, personally figure out where things were going wrong you can't be talking to the customer direct to to set the culture of the organization that you know no one is too important or too high up to deal with customer problems right uh and you know really just drive that culture through and we did i mean we were just constantly trying to improve and you know how can this happen that someone's power has not been turned on and on occasions that was our fault on occasions. It was the fault of other people, you know, in, in the value chain. But you've got, just got to try and improve customer outcomes because that one person who has, who has a, a, the person who turns up and the power is on 
maybe they tell none of their friends. Maybe they tell one friend that, oh, yeah, PowerShop are pretty good. If the, if the power is not on, they'll tell 100 people that it was terrible. So the downside of getting it wrong far outweighs the upside of getting it right. So therefore, it was worth putting time into from a real perspective, business outcome perspective, but also a cultural perspective within the organization. Ed, what's happening in technology in Australia? Are we, are we at world standard? No, I wouldn't say we're at world standard, but we're, we are in terms of, you know, the startup sector yeah. that, that is thriving today compared to 10, 12 years ago. Um, you know, the number of small startups that you hear about every day, the angel investing community, um, the regulatory landscape from a government perspective now is much better. And so, so that's good. And of course, at the other, other end of the scale, we have some enormously successful technology companies, uh, you know, unsuccessful at a global level. Atlassian is one example, of course, that you know, and, and there are others. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, we are behind other parts of the world, but we started later, and I would say we're catching up. And I think that's something that governments have done a good job at. And I think, you know, like the job we talked about before of safety, it, it's never done. My view would be governments should continue to pour money into that sector, whether that's tax relief or, or whatever, to try and get, um, you know, it's just going to pay back so many fold, Greg, in terms of jobs and, and um, tax receipts over time. So I think we are now doing pretty well here. That's my view, but uh, certainly a lot better than a number of years ago. And what do you see happening in the, I guess, the restaurant and food delivery sector going forward in technology, Ed? What's going to be the next, next thing we should be looking forward to? We generally, with everything, over think the short-term impact don't think enough about the long-term impact is that you know i know we're probably doing that with covid today in delivery the question is how long before you have drones ah is that true <laughs> well I, I don't think it's imminent oh you don't think it's but imminent not only that's imminent no but i mean oh, okay. to, to find imminent i mean it's not going to happen next year greg okay but you know everything in, in sectors that I've been in, battery cost, for example, has surprised everyone, I think, in electricity. And we will see grid-scale batteries much quicker than we thought. And so it, it's you wouldn't want to underestimate these things. And and uh, But, you know, I guess so in delivery, that's the question. Drones, robots, et cetera, autonomous vehicles, all those sorts of things. How quickly will those things arrive? I'm not sure. But you, yeah, you but, don't want to make a – I don't want to make a – yeah. One of your shareholders, Amazon – Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they've been uh, they've hit, they've set the target on that, haven't they? They they're using drones. Yeah, yeah. So, so w- but, why, but, why but, you... but but still, I mean, I, I use Amazon all the time, and I'm yet to see a drone. So the question is, yeah, there's a difference between using a drone yeah. and using a drone. So you can pilot things and test things and try things. Okay. But at what point does it become scalable and mass? And and look, it's not it's not next year, but it's not 50 years away, Greg. And I don't want to say anything else on record while you're recording because it'll come back to bite me. But uh, We wouldn't do it, that to you, Ed. No, <laughs> it's difficult to say. But, you know, I think it's hard to make bets. You look back over the years, Greg, on all technologies as they've impacted our lives. It, I think it's very difficult to pick these things. It's coming, but uh, there are barriers to overcome. But there are very, very talented people in Australia and globally looking at these challenges today. As a barometer... You guys see the consumer very clearly. Is confidence up? Absolutely. Look, the, the Australian economy 
is having a V-shaped recovery, uh, which is fantastic. Okay. And we're seeing unemployment come down. We're seeing underemployment come down quicker than unemployment, actually. We're seeing business confidence return to pre-COVID levels. And we're seeing consumer confidence return to pre-COVID levels. And and as I've come back into the you know city centre of Melbourne, uh, that's just where I can comment on because I've not travelled yet. Um, I, I just see things getting busier and busier every day. And, uh, I, you know, interest rates are low. Yes. That's not going to change soon. That will drive investment. So I think we are very lucky. We, we went through some very tough times from a lockdown perspective. But here we are, along with a very small number of other countries. We are, I mean, not COVID-free, of course, but we're in a very, very, very good position. And our economy, I think, reflects that. So I think the hard work that we did last year is now paying off. All right. You seem pretty buoyant by everything. So when you bring people on to your team as a leader in a, in a fast pace, agile company, I guess use the language today, yep. what are you looking for? I would say um, work ethic, curiosity, and certainly for delivery and ability to deal with uh, change and ambiguity in terms of what we're doing and our plans and, and the plans that we made recently are now out of date. We'll make a new plan. Those plans will be out of date. Uh, this is such an emerging sector that that goes with the territory. But generally, I think uh, you're looking for people who are hardworking, are curious, are passionate, You know, bring some energy, and of course, who can get along with colleagues and drive positive outcomes. Those are pretty generic things that... Uh, you know, we're talking very generally for Coke. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are different roles where you want different skills and different yeah. sorts of people. But generally, I'm not sure if it's that different to the sorts of people you'd want around you generally in in, in uh, the non-work setting. You, you just want good people. And uh, good people are very hard to find, which is why you do what you do. Is your selection process fairly arduous, Ed? It's probably at Deliveroo, I would say the culture is a, a longer process than other businesses I've been in. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So more more interviews. Um, yeah, uh, that, that is the case. And, and that's, you know, been the direction that's been set. And I guess the history more than the, and the culture, more than the direction, I should say, mm-hmm. set globally. And, and I've come in, I've seen that, and it seems to be working. And I'm very lucky. Uh, I've, I inherited a, a team of extremely talented people. Okay. The young culture. I'm one of the oldest here. I know it's hard to believe, Greg. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the average age is probably 29. Wow. And uh, so, with that, you, you get people who bring enormous energy and and drive, and that's important in this business because you know it, there's no playbook really. There's no guidebook as to how to do things. It's it's all exploration and, and finding new things. So, so that do- takes a lot of energy. And uh, resilience. So how do you lead? Is it through inspiration? Is it through coach? Is it through pushback? What, what's what's worked for you? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I probably sound like I'm avoiding the question, but I think it's a little bit of all those things. And I mm-hmm. think you need to change your approach depending on the, the person you're dealing with. Some people respond to, to different things, um, a more direct approach, less direct, you know. I mean, and, and so I think good leaders – will adapt depending on the situation and depending on the individual. But I try and be, I mean, I don't know this sounds obvious, but I try and be very honest uh, with people about what's going on because I want honesty back. Bad news, I always say this, bad news is not like red wine, doesn't get better with age. If something's happening, I want to know straight away. 
Um, if I have a conversation with you and, and we agree something that's happening, and if I don't hear about it, I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, you've done it and it's happened. And if that's not the case, then we'll be having a very direct conversation. So look, I'm, I, I try. I think honesty and, and directness is good. That's what I've liked in my career. But then, Greg, look what I've what we've seen the last year is is people have gone through some tough times on a personal level with lockdowns and and you know my team. Some have young children, some don't have children, some yeah. have uh, partners, some don't. Because Deliveroo is a British business, we have many people who are not from Australia, of course, can't get back to see their families, me included. My, my dad is still alive in Ireland. Right. Um, working from home, I've got three young kids. That was tough. Um, so, you know, what, what I think we've all learned as leaders, and this is not particularly insightful, is we've seen a different side to people in the last 12 months because we've all been on videos and we've seen the backgrounds and people coming and going and all of that. And I think we've learned um, that if you, if you didn't understand this prior to COVID, you now understand that you have to adapt your style to take into account what's happening for people in their personal lives. So probably adaptability is a key of, a, of approach, I mean, is a key leadership trait. How do you stay ahead of your competitors, Ed? From what perspective? Technology, market share, New product, new yeah, price. Look, it, it, it is probably it? people. It's it's probably people. You've you've got to try and I mean, getting an edge is is hiring the best people. And um, I think in in organisations, you probably only. I mean, you often hear about this in sport, where you know if your fullback, midfielder, and striker are very strong in whichever team, often that can bring the whole team with them. Yep. And, and you see that in all sorts of sports today. And I think that's true in in the workplace too, if you can get a good group of very talented, very driven people who are also good humans and have all the right things around compassion and, and um, purpose, then that will bring the rest of the organization with them and, and teach younger people, um, you know, some great lessons as I was taught over the years from some tremendous men and women that managed me and mentored me from Glaxo through to where I am today. Yeah, but you were very lucky. You went to Glaxo, which were known for investing in R&D and investing in their people. Absolutely. And, and probably the single biggest um, thing there was the f- culture of feedback. So, you know, you'd, you'd be in a meeting, you'd say something, come out, mm-hmm. tap on the shoulder. Hey, really, you could have approached that a bit differently. And I had plenty of taps on the shoulder in the early days, Greg. And, uh, and you know, that's that's probably why I'm, I've had a little bit of success in my career and why I'm in this role today. And and so I think, I believe it's a real, like, I mean, I think if you if you were in a meeting with somebody and you think, you know what, they could have handled that better just using that same example, you do a real disservice to them to not say something. Ed, small business in Australia, not many make it. Are we being smart how we're supporting small business? Well, I mean, I mean, I think if we just use the COVID example, the federal government did a, a very good job on JobKeeper. I thought that was a tremendous scheme. Um, we spoke to them at the time because similar schemes had been rolled out in other countries where Deliveroo operates and there were a number of issues with those schemes. And and we, we spoke to the government at the time and they did listen. And from my perspective, look, people will – has its criticisms, of course, and there's a debate about whether it should be extended. But I think yeah. – to give the federal government, in this case, some credit, they they did a, a good job and responded pretty quickly in the case of JobKeeper. Aside from that, I just go back to what I said before, Greg, about layers of government. And uh, you think about 
Agreed. You know, we could we could talk all day about examples of just a little layer of bureaucracy that's created by the fact that we have different regulatory schemes in different states. So if you're a small mm-hmm. business that has five offices and three of those are in New South Wales, two in Victoria, one in Adelaide, you're dealing with three different sets of everything. That's right. And that's no disrespect to anybody in those states regulating those things. But I think there is a huge, huge opportunity for harmonization. Why do we have different, I'll give you, I mean, just simple examples. Why do we have different number plates in different states? I mean, it's kind of nice because, you know, oh yeah, you're from Victoria, you're from, it's kinda, I get it, it's kind of nice, but really it's just a waste of money and time for businesses. Why do we have different registrations? If you're a nurse or a doctor, it's different registrations, different states. Well, again, using the previous example, the uh, person in Aubrey and person with, in Wodonga with diabetes, I don't think it takes a different treatment. So really, it should be the same. So I think there's a whole bunch of things that could be harmonized and simplified in in Australia. Um, But look, um, we are, I I can say this, I'm I'm a citizen now, but I'm not from here. We're the lucky country. We have so much going for us here. And uh, things are very, very good. We shouldn't complain. And look at COVID. Here we are, basically the odd case here and there, but pretty much COVID free and certainly COVID free compared to other countries. And so um, I wouldn't want to be seen as complaining far from it, but we should take advantage of the tremendous gift we've been given and just continuously strive to improve things. And uh, and removing red tape for small businesses is a part of that, in my view. You happy with the, um, the tax incentives that small business get? Yeah, I think that's great. And they should get more. Yeah, I could agree more. Um, lucky country. Are we playing international politics smart? Um. It's a great question. I think it's, you know, the situation in the last 12 months with the US and China and everything else that's gone on yeah. is is very difficult to know how Australia should play that because on one hand, we have our largest strategic partner and one hand, our largest trading partner and those two kids don't get along. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, in order to you've almost got to make a bet about what the situation is going to look like in 10, 20, 50 years in order to understand how that could be played better. And I think that's very tough. So I could we be playing it better, Greg? Honestly, it's not my area of expertise and I think we're playing it okay. And it's easy to say, look back and say, well, you know, they should have done this, that, and the other. Uh, there's always opportunity to improve, but uh, we've got to recognize that it's easy to be armchair geopolitical analysts and it's much harder to do it in reality as is the case for you and your role and me and my role yes and so i think a little bit of empathy maybe at times to kind of realize that it's it's difficult because you know we're not a major global player from an economic perspective um, from a geopolitical perspective we perhaps are from an energy perspective when you think about the assets we have in terms of gas exports, in terms of nuclear, in terms of rare earth metals, and perhaps increasingly in terms of energy export through cables to Asia and things like that. That's perhaps a card we could be playing better. But as you know, in the last 10 years, again, all state and federal, both sides of politics have not played energy particularly well. And uh, so can, can we do something on the global stage Maybe, but probably involves sorting out the, the domestic stage first. So your big concern is we're just we're missing out on some opportunities. Is that is that the big worry from from your perspective? 
we've got the talent, we've got the ability, but we've got the handicap slowing us down called red tape? I think it's to some extent, and I think, look, the federal government came out, I think, last year to say, hey, we're going to pick these winners, these sectors to invest in. I think that's a good thing. We've certainly got the talent um, and we've got the track record, but I think probably spreading, it's no different to a business. You know, what's the number one rule in business? Well, it's not the number one rule probably, but it's in the top 10. Don't spread yourself too thin. Don't try too many things. Deliveroo could run off and start thinking about, well, should we be delivering pens to people? I just say that because I have a pen in my hand. Well, we could do it, but it's probably a distraction really on what we do as a core business. So uh, in a similar way, I think picking a number of industries and, you know, people will say governments shouldn't pick winners, but nevertheless, I think we should pick things that agri as an example, energy is perhaps an example, and the government should really get behind those things. And the amount of money we were talking about to, in terms of tax write-offs, is, yes. is the sweat off our brow as a country, and we should just drive investment into those areas, and then those things try and be a global player. And in some of those things, we are. We've got some look look at the history. CSL is an example. Cochlear, yep. yep. tremendous global leadership, and we are lucky that we have CSL here in Australia now, uh, with the ability to manufacture vaccine. So, if we don't get our act together in regards to the gig economy, are the others from the other side? other sides of the world going to come in and take up that market share? Um, well, look, I mean, you're one, you're, you're one of them in one, one regard. Absolutely. British, absolutely. Right? But, but I mean, we, as a nation, we want foreign investment and, uh, and, and that goes across many sectors. And, and, you know, again, I'll just go back to energy. Meridian was a, a New Zealand business. There are countries where it is easier today to invest in energy than in Australia because yeah. of the kind of regulatory government risk at a state and federal level as a result of not having people often say policy certainty is lacking i never really believed that i thought it was policy stability is a better way of describing things there's no such thing as certainty in business but you want some idea of what the playing field is and that to be even if it's not in your favor as long as it's stable you can deal with that and think about what your returns might be ed what's going to be um the definition of success for you at deliveroo uh we, we want to grow we want to grow sustainably and very rapidly in a way that is sustainable for restaurants, delivers good value to consumers, and, and also works for the contractors who, who work for us to deliver the food. And we've covered a couple of aspects around that mm. in terms of one, safety, very important, and two, what the future employment model looks like somewhere between perhaps an employee and a contractor, and, and maybe there's some benefits. So we want to try and make a contribution to that debate and, and uh, deliver a return to our shareholders who will as a result, continue to invest in this country. One criticism. Yeah. Which comes up. Commission. Yep. Charge too much? No, I don't believe so. So often you'll hear, well, food delivery companies charge between 20 and 30%. And uh, when you step back from that, if you don't understand the economics, unit economics of the industry, that does seem a large amount. But remember that a substantial proportion of that let's call it 20% for the sake of a number, it varies, of course, goes to paying the delivery rider. So when you look at how much we make as a percentage basis or a dollar basis net of the rider being paid, it's a much smaller amount in percentage terms and actually would be a lower percentage than many other marketplace businesses. If you looked at what Amazon or eBay charge as a marketplace in a percentage basis, our percentage net of what the rider earns would be smaller. And so I think as an industry, Greg, your criticism is fair because we've not done a good enough job at communicating that to 
restaurants, to be frank. But increasingly, uh, we are doing that as a sector. Uh, but to political and other stakeholders, we, we've not done a, a good enough job. And, and you're right. If you're an outsider consumer, you think 20, 30%, it does seem exorbitant. But uh, when, you, when you start to think about the economics and who needs to be paid where, um, this is not a high margin business. No, but I'll flip the other way, Ed, as well. Would, I, um, would it be fair to say you guys were a lifeline to the restaurant sector? 100% true. Yeah. Absolutely. So, but you know, it great. it's got to work for everyone. And um, one of the things I think is that restaurants today, their, their business structure has been designed with a very high proportion of dining. And as that's shifted, they need to shift their business to adapt to a scenario where there's more delivery. And, and that requires change so that uh, they can continue to earn what they used to earn. And good restaurants will do that. Ed, big tricky question for you. Yeah. Really important one for me. If I was going to go and invest in a restaurant, what cuisine should I should I make it? What's the highest delivery you guys do? It tends to be comfort food, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, so some of the larger brands that you'll be familiar with, like KFC and McDonald's that we work with, it's burgers, it's pizzas. But increasingly, it's what you might describe as health foods. Now, of course, McDonald's is an example over the years has developed uh, more healthy options on their menus, and that's great. Uh, but as, as a general trend, of course, we are seeing healthier options on menus uh, come to the fore. And Ed, what do you order the kids? Uh, well, if, if I get to choose, which yeah. I never do. Come on, what do you what do you order at home? No, I don't ever get to choose. I'm I'm, I'm the <laughs> least important person in our house. It's if it's if if my elder daughter gets to pick. It's it's uh, burgers. If it's the middle one, it's uh, middle daughter. It's pizzas, and my son is a bit too young. He's nearly two. He doesn't get a choice. He's like me. He just gets gets told. Greg, if you were to look back at the young guy studying university in Ireland before he packed his bags and came overseas, what advice would you give him now? Uh, look, I'd say simple things, Greg. Work hard. Read widely. Always be learning. Be nice to people. Be polite. Uh, it's amazing how much return on investment that delivers and, and try and do the right thing uh, in business and, and for people around you. And uh, don't ever look for a return on those things, but a return will come would be my experience and advice. Ed, on that, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.